Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, how strong are Russia's armed forces? A new report sets out their capabilities. Uh, we've got smaller but better armed forces that are uh, tested on operations and have learned to inculcate the lessons of those operations throughout the armed forces. We speak to one of the experts behind that report from a leading think tank. Young Gurkha recruits are trialling a new element to combat training. It's called wet gap crossing. We have a report from Northumberland. It was quite nervous for, for both of us to uh, cross the river for the first time in, in this, you know, with all these gears and weapon, all this load. We are really proud of ourselves. Uh, today I learned how to, you know, overcome the fear. And marking 30 years since women were deployed on operations at sea with the Royal Navy. We were still working to get our first uh, flag-ranked uh, female officer and I would really hope that we would see one of those very soon become Admiral. Uh, and that will be a great day when we, when we have our first a female Admiral in the, in the Royal Navy. But first... This year's victory parade in Moscow, a showcase for Russian military might. Well, now a report from an influential defence think tank concludes that Russia has more military strength today than at any time since the fall of the Soviet Union. That's according to the International Institute for Strategic Studies, the IISS, who lay out their findings in a report called Russia's Military Modernization and Assessment. Well, James Hackett is a senior fellow for defence and military analysis at the IISS, and he spoke to me earlier about their research. What we're talking about is maybe 12 years after the beginning of the uh, 2008 New Look reforms. Uh, we've got smaller but better armed forces that are uh, tested on operations and have learned to inculcate the lessons of those operations throughout the armed forces. So I think you've seen a, a sort of a step change in capability, really, uh, for the Russian armed forces in recent years. However, it hasn't been an, un an unalloyed success. Um, aspects of the modernization initiatives under the 2020 state armament programme haven't been fulfilled in some cases or have only been partially fulfilled. What do you think Russia has learned from recent operations? Well, if you look at the, um, the Georgia campaign in 2008, uh, they had to uh, pull aircrew from test centres because there just weren't enough to go around. There weren't enough young trained aircrew to go around. In Syria, that's a very different case now. There have been investments in training, investments in bringing in and generating a younger, larger cadre of trained aircrew. Flying hours have gone up. And I think you've started to see a, an improvement more generally in terms of the, the attitude towards rotating people through Syria at high levels as well. Unless I'm mistaken, all the military district commands have commanded Russian forces in Syria. So they're looking to deploy people overseas and then inculcate the lessons of those deployments and uh, distribute them throughout the armed forces. I mean, you point out that Russia's military is significantly smaller than the Soviet predecessors. Have the drivers for change been financial pressures and the experiences of recent operations? Um, well, the, the ambition to reduce forces uh, really preceded the 2008 reforms. Um, Post-Cold War, there was a reassessment of uh, the, the threats to Russia. They wanted to produce more mobile forces capable of engaging in the operations they saw taking place or likely to take place on their periphery. And that led to the, the, the move away from divisions that we saw in the post-2008 period. But the forces were very large because, of course, they were intended to 
it was a mass mobilization army back then. You had cadre units staffed by a lot of officers that were intended to bring in reservists in time of crisis or war. So you had a very large military establishment that wasn't being used. What they've looked to do from early initiatives in the 90s that were halting and end from the late uh, 2000s and then certainly post-2008 is introduce a more, a more professional uh, cadre by, by bringing in uh, contract service initiatives. And they're, they're professionals that sign up on contract. What we've got now is actually the, uh, a reverse. So we've now got, I think, our figures are at the moment about 400,000 contractors, which is about double the number of conscripts. So they've actually turned on its head the, the old sort of Soviet-era model of a conscript-dominated armed force. And in looking at your report, uh, what do you think those working on the integrated review should take from it? Oh, I wouldn't want to give uh, any sort of specific um, recommendations. It's a complex task, I'm sure, that those individuals are working on. We're talking about a capability continuum for countries like Russia. But it's worth focusing also on some of the the capability areas in terms of military equipment that Russia has looked to recapitalize. Um, within the army, for instance, you've had a wholesale re recapitalization of the um, Tochka U 120mm battlefield rocket uh, inventory with 500km Iskander uh, systems. Um, wholesale mo modernization upgrade, really, of T-72s. Um, not so much of the introduction of the next generation kit that everyone saw uh, first advertised in uh, 2015 in the military parade in Moscow. In the Navy, we've seen you know, the integration of uh, land attack cruise missile capability from submarines and smaller surface platforms as well. It's a sort of concept, I think the Americans talk of it in this terms of distributed lethality, putting out punch across the fleet, so not necessarily concentrating in key platforms. And in the Air Force, of course, we've seen a, a force that's been tested on fairly continuous operations in Syria, long-range strike operations, the integration of long-range cruise missiles, continued integration of those. I think there's a, a lot of hard power developments that are still taking place in the Russian armed forces. And I think the interesting thing to bear in mind now, of course, with um, countries like Russia, but also uh, China, uh, is that these countries are looking to sell this equipment as well. So the risk for Western armed forces isn't necessarily that you might run up against Russia or China on operations, but you might run up against some of their equipment that they've sold to a third party. So this week um, we're hearing that Russia has tested its Circon hypersonic cruise missile and successfully hit a target in the Barents Sea on Putin's 68th birthday. How significant is this? Uh, well, I think it it's, uh, reflects, again, uh, an aspect of capability development. Russia's advertised for uh, quite some time now that they've been looking to integrate um, CERCOM onto maritime platforms. The Gorshkov, um, I think, has previously been involved in tests for this, uh, this system. So it's not wholly unexpected. Uh, it just uh, reinforces Russia's capability developments in high-speed and precision weapons. I think the important thing to bear in mind with some of these systems, though, is that they're not wholly new. Uh, like a lot of uh, Russia's systems that have been introduced, um, you know, a lot of the flanker developments based on a platform that was introduced, you know, over 20, 25 years ago. We're not necessarily seeing wholly new systems come into force, come into play. Um, hypersonic systems, of course, have been in development and been spoken about for decades. So I think that the interesting thing for Russian capability development is actually what they do next. You know, what they do next post uh, SU-27. They've seen, uh, you know, 10-year delays to the SU-57. So although we do see a lot of these new systems being introduced and, you know, the introduction of 
high, higher speed weapons is, is certainly an interesting development in terms of naval capability. Um, the next 10 years in terms of general technological development, I think, will be key for the, uh, the future of the Russian armed forces. That was James Hackett from the IISS there. Well, with me now is Francis Chuser, editor of Defence Analysis, now Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Francis, a very comprehensive report there. Let's pick up a few points. First, the idea of a smaller but stronger Russian military. Arguably uh, most important, and you could say it has taken them a little bit of time to work out that aspects of how the West uh, equips itself, arms itself, and organises itself are just better. Um, and Russia, if I remember rightly, has a declining population. Trying to um, maintain anything remotely like Cold War-style uh, mobilisation forces was just going to be problematic and increasingly difficult. So, yes, cut useless um, conscripts uh, and actually just go for a more professional force. It just made sense and we, we are seeing the benefits. And Christopher, a lot of emphasis on the lessons learned from operations such as Russia's involvement in Syria. Yes, but it had to be pulled together. You couldn't, the, 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 Russian, uh, the Russian army and the Air Force, they weren't all ready to go, but they did. They pulled them together, then they got the right number of bodies that could drive aeroplanes, for example. And there was a weakness right at the beginning um, in, in the close air support uh, for, the, for the ground forces. And, you know, close air support is everything. You can't do anything unless you've got an aeroplane over you protecting you as well or moving forward. But this was sorted. And the success the, for the Russians, they would say, uh, in, in Syria was, was, a, uh, was quite good. They've also, they've also got uh, other forces that are not, uh, don't come under the, uh, the army, the air force, navy, etc. Uh, they're almost like mercenaries. They've got them operating. They've got them operating in places like Libya. Uh, and so we shouldn't ignore that. But by and large, especially with the reduction of the size of the brigade and the reorganization of brigade command, uh, it has been uh, a slow, painful, uh, but, uh, but it is a success. And Francis, James Hackett talks about Russia having a range of assets, and those include cyber and space, of course. Um, yes, and people are at the moment, I'd say, from the Western side, slightly obsessing about cyber and space as almost the only areas wars will be fought in the future, which I think is a great mistake, because as uh, James Hacker pointed out, a lot of the advances for Russia are in hard power. And that is, yes, they may have uh, bot factories outside St. Petersburg churning stuff out. People, again, obsess about the green men who you couldn't specifically tie down to Moscow. Yes, conveniently forgetting that uh, Ukraine was invaded by, what, three, four armoured divisions? You know, some of the largest tank battles since World War II on European soil. Um, despite this, I, I do call it an obsession with cyber, hard power is what causes uh, regime change. And Christopher, uh, one note of caution that was sounded there by James Hackett was that um, they may be developing weapons, but also you need to be concerned about who those weapons might be sold to. What can you envisage there as being a danger? Um, there's, the, the danger is that the wrong people, as we would say, sort of, let's say in Whitehall, are the wrong people are getting these weapons. And nobody likes another country selling their weapons. Who might uh, they sell them to, though? Middle East countries. Um, and I mean, that's pretty, pretty, you know, a pretty simple sort of direction. But the point is we don't like them selling because we want to sell them. The other part of this is the changes that are taking place uh, in the 
personnel. Um, it's interesting, you know, the numbers of conscripts have been reduced. And the, certainly the, the, the old Soviet, and it continued into the Russian armed forces, um, regarded conscripts almost how many Russian A-levels you've got. And so if you wanted to look at the best conscripts, the best uh, national service people, you went to look at strategic rocket force, people who, who, you know, who do the missiles. And you find a lot of very, very good conscripts working there. And you go, go down to uh, infantry level, I'm afraid there's a sort of attitude of, well, send them out to the fields at harvest time and get the crops in. And this has all changed. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. There's been renewed fighting in one of the most long-standing conflicts from the fall of the Soviet Union. Iran has warned that the fighting between its neighbours, Azerbaijan and Armenia, could escalate into a wider regional war. President Hassan Rouhani said he hoped to restore stability to the region following days of heavy clashes over the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh enclave. The enclave is officially part of Azerbaijan but run by ethnic Armenians. More than 300 people have died since the clashes began on the 27th of September but there are fears the actual death toll among military forces as well as civilians could be much higher as casualty claims have not been independently verified. Uh, Christopher, this current fighting is the worst seen in decades and both sides have blamed each other for the violence. A long history there. Well, it's, been a, it's been an absolute pain and it keeps coming up and down uh, since 1920 which is when uh, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan became founder members of the Soviet, Soviet Union. Um, and you know, somebody pointed out, well, Nagorno-Karabakh was a small Armenian enclave. And so the, the Soviet Union said, well, you can, you can have it, Azerbaijan. It uh, uh, is under Azerbaijan control. And there you are, there's the beginning of the problem. One lot are sort of mainly sort of Christians, Armenian Christians, um, and they have their own idea where they should be. But it's an enclave in somebody else's country. And it's, 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 the, it's the groundwork for fireworks, isn't it? And that's what it's been all the way through. Peace talks have never turned out to be anything more than the truce in the fighting. And Francis, this conflict is drawing in many players, Iran, Turkey and others. Is there a real danger of escalation? Certainly, if you do start seeing... Uh, for example, Turkey, which is reported to have deployed some surface-to-air missile units either uh, into the, the combat area or at least very close, if they start getting directly involved, you will then see people like Iran going, look, we just can't sit back and watch this happen. Um, I would suspect at the moment, from a, a Western point of view, seeing Turkey and Iran um, slugging it out against each other would be regarded as a bit of a win-win. Mm. Christopher, the US, France and Russia have jointly condemned the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh and have called for peace talks, but the conflict shows no sign of abating. No, well, they've got, they've, they've got some talks going on today in Geneva, and so you'll find representatives there from France, Russia, America, NATO as well. Um, but nobody's going to put a deal together, uh, partly because the, the, the Russians now said, oh, we can have, a, uh, we can have uh, talks as well in Moscow next week. So, I mean, if you, were, uh, if you were involved in this, you're saying, right, we'll hang out and see if we can get a better deal next week, uh, seeing what the Russians are willing to offer. Okay. Now, young Gurkha recruits have been trialling a potential new element to the British Army's combat infantryman's training. 
Wet gap crossing, essentially how to traverse a river or body of water, is not currently part of the standard course, but some feel this important skill needs to be reviewed. And Gurkha Company volunteered to try it out. Hannah King reports from Otterburn Training Area in Northumberland. This is my first experience uh, in my lifetime crossing a river. Uh, so I think it is going to be a fun. Training rifleman Aman Garung and his fellow recruits are the first to try out this possible new module of infantryman training. I don't know the temperature of water, but uh, I think it's quite cold here. The basic training for all British Army infantrymen is reviewed and updated every three years. And amidst fears wet gap crossing skills were fading away, they're considering including them in the course. Jungle warfare instructor Sergeant Ashok Gurung explains what the young recruits are learning. Whenever you are crossing a river, uh, the main thing is you always have to look 360 to make sure that the enemies are not there. They have to be very tactically sound whenever they are into the water. Make sure that there isn't any noise coming out from your body and dripping water uh, because the sound can travel up to miles while you are crossing the river. By chance, if our weapon gets submerged inside the water, we just uh, unload the weapon, dry out all the water quickly with dry clothes, and we just uh, oil up the walking parts of the weapon, because if it doesn't operate, there is no uh, purpose of going to the war. Do you remember your first river crossing? Uh, yes, uh, I do remember when I was in Brunei. I, remember, uh, I was the first, uh, first man to cross the river, uh, as I was good on swimming, so they put me, OK, um, young man, let's go and uh, do the river crossing. I, I had that feeling there, that there are some crocodiles and anacondas on the river, uh, inside the river, but, uh, you know, uh, I crossed the river uh, with, uh, with lots of courage, you know. At least they shouldn't have to worry about crocodiles in Otterburn. No, they don't have to. <laughs> My name is Dipendra Limbu. At first I was really nervous because the weather was already cold and so getting wet was not probably a good idea for me. Uh, but uh, when, when I got, jumped into the river, uh, my excitement was high, so I didn't feel any cold and now I'm, and still I'm not feeling any cold because still feeling warmer and can do it once, once more. Yeah. My name is Sankar Ali Mogar. We don't know what's inside the water so, and what's the depth of the water. So it was quite nervous for, for both of us to uh, cross the river for the first time in, in this, you know, with all these gears and weapon, all this load. We are really proud of ourselves. Uh, today I learned how to, you know, overcome the fear, you know, seeing all those numbers and my section commanders uh, crossing the rivers. They really help us, you know, cross the rivers. If the plan goes ahead, wet gap crossing skills will become a standard part of all infantrymen's training in 2021, refreshing the old, feared, forgotten skill. Hannah King reporting there. Now, MPs have been told the MOD's new armoured vehicle programme is over budget and may need to be reviewed. They were taking evidence from defence experts as part of an inquiry into the programme, parts of which are years behind schedule. The Defence Committee inquiry comes in the run-up to the government's Integrated Defence and Security Review. Simon Newton reports. 
It's the biggest review of Britain's defence and security since the Cold War, and it could be brutal. The integrated review, when it finally comes, is expected to make some hard decisions about what the MOD can and can't afford. Apart from a few protected vehicles rushed into service for Afghanistan, the British Army hasn't had a new bespoke armoured vehicle for 20 years. The MOD has a multi-billion pound procurement programme underway, buying Boxer, Ares and Ajax fighting vehicles. The question is whether those programmes and others will survive intact. Already there's been reports of senior military figures considering cutting the Army's entire fleet of Challenger tanks and Warrior fighting vehicles. Supporters say reducing the Army's armoured capability would be dangerous short-termism. Others, that it's inevitable, the military better off spending money on its people than shiny bits of kit. Whatever shape and mass the review says the army should take, and what armour it keeps, many think it'll be asked to do less with less. The armed forces, like the entire nation, facing a new financial reality. Well, still with us is Francis Chuza, editor of Defence Analysis, who gave evidence to the committee this week. Francis, in broad terms, how would you assess the character of warfare and how it's changing? We've just been discussing uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia and also Ukraine. Um, People are saying, oh, warfare, changing. At the end of the day, um, we have still seen uh, armed formations rolling across the terrain, taking it. Um, There may be some adjuncts from cyber. um, But at the end of the day, um, if you have not got protection for your troops, if you were, I'm taking the extreme example, you had literally just soft-skinned vehicles, come up against pretty much any other enemy and your soldiers are toast so armored fighting vehicles in pretty much every range are going to be here for the time being until technology comes along and people have been uh, researching a thing called electric armor where in effect you have a an electric cage around your vehicle and any round or uh uh, missile comes close it gets blatted with an electric pulse it's been tested it generally works. It's just incredibly complicated and incredibly expensive. So until those sort of things come along and also the, possibly the next generation of protection systems, active protection systems, which shoot down, in effect, incoming projectiles, you're, you're still left with metal armour, generally speaking. So you have total confidence when the Defence Secretary says the review will be threat-led, not numbers-led, and has specifically said the idea that tanks won't be there for the army upgraded and modernised is wrong. It was interesting that we had the stories about uh, the tank fleet being uh, basically uh, retired completely. Um, From what I gather, that it wasn't a a temporary thing they considered. It was a very, very serious um, consideration. However, it looks as if the government has sort of triangulated this with how it would be perceived uh, by the public and thought, you know what, keep some... Keep some in in, the, in stock. Also, it would not look very good to our uh, allies in Europe if the UK um, opted out of heavy armour. It would put us very firmly in second division, and I think that was that was a consideration. Christopher, the upgrades to Challenger Two should see it in service by 2035. Francis clearly believes it's still needed, but does the British Army still need heavy armour? If you happen to be thinking about fighting a war in Europe, uh, and Taking, let's say, the, the the modern Russia as your as your likely enemy. Yes, you need a tracked vehicle with a big gun that can go and take territory and then stand there and actually protect that territory. And that's why you need a tank. But the argument has been going on about vehicles, armored vehicles. 1988, um, they had to replace 400 or so replacement vehicles. They're still talking about it. 1988. 
1990, they wanted to replace the tank. They're still talking about it. Hmm. That is the difficulty. Everybody's got an idea why they need it or don't need it. And so they hum and har at each other at chief hmm. of staff level. Christopher, thank you. Um, stay with us. And Francis Chuser, thank you very much for your time today. Now, it's 30 years since women were first deployed on operations at sea with the Royal Navy. And since then, they've served as pilots, observers and mine clearance divers. The first woman to command a major warship was announced in 2012 and the first female submariners came two years later. So how has the role of women in the senior service changed in that time? Commander Lucy Otley, who was 20, has 20 years service with the Royal Navy, is secretary of the Naval Service Women's Network. She told me her memories of the time when women were first deployed to sea. I think it, it was a, I was aware of it at the time. There was a TV program on called HMS Brilliant, which followed the ship at the time. And it was certainly reported in that that women were going to sea in the first time. So I think I was aware of it. I was of high school age at the time. But I think at the, at the time I wasn't thinking about joining the Navy specifically. I was probably a little bit too young. But I think it was a real defining moment and it, it, was, it was a real corner to turn in, in those days. So, yeah, I, I do remember it happening. And that was, that was women being deployed for the first time on a Royal Navy warship during the Gulf War. Quite a big moment. Yes. But, you know, 30 years at sea with the Royal Navy. But women have served at sea much longer than that generally, haven't they? Yes, and we celebrated in 2017 100 years of the Women's Royal Naval Service. And there was an exhibition uh, in Portsmouth Museum for over 250 years worth of women working alongside the Royal Navy, uh, which I was very lucky to be part of back in 2017. Um, so there is a long history of women uh, working with the Royal Navy. And what made you want to join and what was it like when you did? I, I didn't really think about it until I was doing my A-levels and I uh, started uh, by joining the Combined Cadet Force and I really enjoyed the activities we were doing and I think I had some natural ability uh, for sailing and uh, drill and I enjoyed all of it and I thought, yeah, I think I can make um, a, bit of a, a bit of a career of this. Uh, and I guess I had a little bit of experience with the Royal Navy because my father served uh, in the Royal Navy, so I'd been to families' days uh, and other bits and pieces, albeit had not occurred to me up until that point uh, to join up. But I think uh, it was a really, it was a really positive experience. Uh, I, I set out my stall. I wanted to do that. I went to the Admiralty Interview Board, uh, and I and I got myself to Dartmouth. Um, and and I think that's that's what it's all about. It's, it's about having uh, an aspiration and working hard to achieve that. And your career has been very varied. Um, Secretary to the Ark Royal during the Iraq War, you were the first female officer to be appointed to 847 Squadron. How do you think the role of women has changed in the senior service over time? Yeah, I think there has been a lot of change, even in the 20 years that I've been in. And it's great to see that change. It's great to see that there's more opportunities for women uh, today than there was when I joined up. Um, I would have loved to have been a submariner and it's great to see so many uh, colleagues joining the submarine service now. Um, I have a colleague who's a mine clearance diver uh, and that's an opportunity that was opened up in, in 2013. And we now uh, are starting to see women joining uh, the Royal Marines. So there's some fantastic um, headway out there uh, and our numbers are increasing. Uh, there are over 3,000 women now serving in, in all areas of the Royal Navy 
Um, and I think it's about doing a good job and, and doing what you want to do and making those opportunities work for you. So, so it's great. And how would you like to see the role of women in the Royal Navy progress? You've mentioned the opportunities that are already available. What more do you think should be made available? Um, I think I think the opportunities are there, but I think uh, we're still working to get our first uh, flag-ranked uh, female officer, and I would really hope that we would see one of those very soon become admiral, uh, and that will be a great day when we when we have our first a female admiral in the in the Royal Navy. And how long do you think it will be till we don't have a first sea lord, but a first sea lady? Oh, I, I really hope that's on the cards in the future, and I know that lots of work is, is being looked at across the diversity and inclusion. Um, uh, you know, th- that's that's an actual possibility going forward. Christopher, 30 years since the first active deployment at sea. But as Commander Otley said, women have been involved for years before that. Yeah, certainly sort of two or three hundred years. Uh, as, as, as junior ratings, fixing guns during wartime, for example. But as active members of the Navy, it wasn't until very recent times that the old wrens that wore blue and uh, were subject to naval discipline, they merged with the Royal Navy. And that's when they got their first Commodore. And a Commodore is a, we should call it a one-star, one-star rank. Uh, Commodore, Rear Admiral, Vice Admiral, Admiral, Admiral of the Fleet, no longer. Um, mm. And so there have been senior officers. But the trouble is you've got to get them to do all the, all the other jobs. They can't just go and leap into a, uh, being, being Admiral of the Fleet straight away. Mm. They have to do the Commodore and the other jobs as well. Christopher, thank you. Uh, that's it from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at bfbs.com slash sitrep. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.